what is the good life? Because life is messy. It is not clean. And the healthier our church gets, the more we know these stories. And you know what we do for each other? We say, welcome to the club of the broken and the crushed in spirit who know that there is nothing that we give to the Lord for our salvation except our sin, which necessitated it in the first place. How are we to define the good life and how do we sustain it? And David here calls on his people to experience the Lord's goodness by relying on him in their times of distress. The good life, David says, is found by taking refuge in God. Enjoyment of God is the only happiness in which the soul can be most deeply satisfied. Thanks for tuning in to the Trinity Presbyterian Church Weekly Podcast. We're glad you joined us. Trinity is a member congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America and the Acts 29 Network. We are located in Owasso, Oklahoma. Follow us at trinityowasso.com. Also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trinity Owasso. In the summers at our church, we go through the book of Psalms. And this being the sixth summer that we've gone through the Psalms, this is also the last Psalm that we will look at together. We're going to look at the second half of Psalm 34. We began Psalm 34 last week. And next week, we'll start a new series on 1 Corinthians as we launch into the fall. So, Psalm 34, the Psalms, if you remember, are the hymn book, the prayer book of God's people. They were written by various people throughout the history of ancient Israel. David himself wrote 73 of them. And they were meant to be for us a kind of poetic, spiritual temple for you to be able to enter into the presence of God wherever you were, whether you lived in Israel in the time of the temple or you were the exile in Babylon or you were the exile in 2021 in Oklahoma. The Psalms are written to help you express the full orb of human emotion before Him. And in so doing, learn what it means to find your refuge in Him. A key phrase that you'll see twice in this psalm. So would you, if you're able, stand with me and we'll read Psalm 34, verses 8 through the end, verse 22. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, oh, children, and listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What is man who desires life and loves many good days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. 
When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What is the good life, and how do you keep it? When I was 18 years old, I gathered with a group of college students in Austin, Texas. Half of us went to go party on 6th Street, and the other half of us went to a conference downtown called Passion. We heard at this conference men call younger generations to a bold faith in Jesus, yearned with us to carry the torch of the gospel to the next generation. We learned the verse, yes, Lord, walking in the way of your truth, your name and your renown are the desire of our soul. We had it memorized, Isaiah 26, 8. Back in College Station at A&M, I would go from the day to studying to night playing intramurals. And on Tuesday night, we would go to a Bible study that was 100 people. And then it became a couple thousand people and was at a church and then moved to a basketball arena. On Thursday nights, my roommates and I, we would would invite a a group of people to come over and we would worship together at uh, 1115 Bayou Woods, which is our home. And we would pack that house as as much as we could. We would invite two of our close friends, Shane Bernard and Caleb Carruth, two young guitarists who had this amazing gift and they would come and lead us in worship. And we would just pack the house and sing. It was, a, it was a strange time. I loaded up my, uh, my car with some buddies and we went and drove to Shelby Farms, Tennessee three weeks before graduation in May of 2000. And we sat in the middle of a field in Tennessee amidst the rain for a couple of days. And we heard these, these men preach and call us together. And one of those men was a guy named John Piper who had this amazing impassioned plea to a whole generation of men who said, do not buy into the American dream. Don't buy it. What are you going to do? Stand before God one day and say, Lord, look at the size of my boat. Or as he famously said, Lord, look at my shell collection. I met a lot of friends when I was in college, and like many of you, had this amazing experience where the Lord was near to the brokenhearted, those of us who are crushed in spirit, struggling with what we were going to do with our lives, whether we we're going to go into medicine or go to law school, many of us ended up going into ministry because we wanted to be able to preach the glory and grandeur of Jesus so that people could taste and see that the Lord is good, which for us was just a very small little experience through an amazing season of our lives in college. And I know that's true for many of you. And there were many people that I met there And I think back about many of those people today. Where are we? Sarah and Josh Davenport live in a suburb of a city that they love. 
Josh drives 20 miles to work every day and Sarah takes care of the kids at home. And when they're at school, she cares for a two-year-old Labrador retriever that their eight-year-old son Jackson affectionately named Tony Stark Davenport. Mom Sarah enjoys time at home, tidying up and preparing meals for their family, shopping with friends, playing tennis at the club, and spending time working with nonprofits in town. They're active in their alumni association from college, and they fill the white spaces of their calendar, shuttling kids to soccer and gymnastics. Bruce Singleton, 48, is single, and he lives on a stretch of sidewalk near Archer and Elwood. He lost his job two years before COVID hit. He wasn't able to land anything before things shut down and he has struggled ever since. He has his GED. He's a regular at one of the Christian missions in town. And they're going to hire Bruce to head their pantry in their clothes closet. He tries to encourage others the best he can and he's even opening to leading a Bible study for those who have lost their job. His local church takes a bus to pick him and several others up for worship on Sunday. He loves going. He smiled as he said, people at my church have embraced me as one of them. I'm just the guy who happens to need a ride. Sam Jones is a recent college grad. He lives in downtown in a loft and he walks to 36 degrees north. He doesn't need a car. He sold it last year. He's content with dating around and the thought of settling down doesn't fit with his plans. He's eager to love his city, but he doesn't know quite where to fit in as a single early 30s bachelor in a culture that seems to center around family activities. He wants to move to Austin or Nashville, but he hates the thought of paying more for rent. Julie McCluskey lives uh, with her parents. She's in her 30s, singles, and she has very, uh, very close, close friends who are like family to her. She doesn't mind living at home. She lives for a natural gas pipeline company in downtown, and she's saved a lot of money in the past two years. She's generous with other people. Occasionally, she yearns for a larger family, but she recognizes that is not what God has for her, and she's content with that. She wants to play a more active role in her church. Should I go on? Stan Guthrie went to work right out of high school and he never looked back. He loves good beer, good friends. He loves the outdoors. He's always lived in Oklahoma and he's worked for the same company for the past 15 years. He's laid back. People at work love him. He wants to meet a girl and settle down, but he doesn't seem, doesn't want to seem too eager and he says he plays it cool most of the time. Sarah Thompson, she's in the eighth grade. She's smart, she makes good grades, she likes math and science, she gets her work done at school, but she stresses at home a lot about it too. She feels like she's just outside the popular crowd, but it doesn't bother her much. She's eager to get to high school where she looks forward to meeting more people. She loves her parents. She tolerates her younger brother and sister. She spends time after school with friends and at practice, which takes her until dinner most nights. Question. Who of these people do you most relate to? Except for Sarah Thompson, who's in the eighth grade, each of these people had an amazing experience at some point in their past of the nearness of God and a deep, deep confidence of his love for them. 
And each of them were asking the question, how do I live the good life? How can I stay safe and secure? And Psalm 34, friends, gives us the answer to that question if you have ears to hear it. In this ancient poem, David combines individual gratitude and wisdom and pulls them together. And David glorified and honored God for delivering his people. And he reflects on the Lord's promise that he will provide good for the godly. And in this section, 8, verses 8 through 22, you see it hemmed in by this curious phrase, those who take refuge in him. Those who take refuge in him, David says, will be able to experience a long and good life. And like the Proverbs, he says, children, come close, come listen to me. Listen to me tell you this wisdom. Oh, you who are longing to live the good life, do you have ears to hear it? What is the good life? David asks in Psalm 34. What if I shared with you that Josh and Sarah Davenport haven't talked to their parents in 18 years? They're in debt up to their eyeballs and Josh's salary cannot keep up with Sarah's spending habits. They confide in close friends that they enjoy their children, but they as a couple haven't talked about anything meaningful in a month. They have no church. They don't even know what the church offers. Bruce Singleton has turned down several jobs because he can make more money with unemployment and panhandling. He doesn't want the responsibility of an apartment or a house. His tent got a tear in it last week, but he picked up a new one from the local Christian mission. He does love his church. Sam Jones, who lives downtown, he's outworn his welcome in most of his circles. He's overbearing. He's he's self-congratulatory. He thinks a lot about his newest investment success and he uses it as a measuring stick it drives people crazy he wants to move to Austin and Nashville because no one in Tulsa he says seems to like him very much he's lonely and he wants his car back and he plans to buy a new one next week but man he says used cars have you seen they're expensive Julie Milkuski who lives at home with her parents, she has two children who live with their father. Her drinking became too much 10 years ago and her husband moved out to protect the kids. They got a divorce last year and she's living with her parents in order to save money. Oh, she gives a lot of money to her husband in child support because she is the breadwinner for the family. Her children are confused by her going to church now because she used to get really mean when she was drunk. They don't believe her when she says that she stopped drinking. They don't feel safe around her anymore. Stan Guthrie, Sarah Thompson have stories of their own. What's the point? The point is that each of these people, just like you were asking, what is the good life? And each of these people can tell their story in a way much like you can through social media or through the way that you small talk with your friends that sets the story up to just look amazing, either begging for accolades of approval and of affirmation or asking for your pity. And the truth is that each of our stories could be repeated. We could stand up and go one by one and tell our story. And we can, each of us, tell the dark side of our family's history and of where we are and our desire to reconcile with our aunts or uncles or families or children. 
We're all asking, what is the good life? And for crying out loud, Trinity, what is the good life? Because life is messy. It is not clean. And the healthier our church gets, the more we know these stories. And you know what we do for each other? We say, welcome to the club of the broken and the crushed in spirit who know that there is nothing that we give to the Lord for our salvation except our sin, which necessitated it in the first place, as Jonathan Edwards once said. How are we to define the good life and how do we sustain it? And David here calls on his people to experience the Lord's goodness by relying on him in their times of distress. The good life, David says, is found by taking refuge in God. Enjoyment of God is the only happiness in which the soul can be most deeply satisfied, Jonathan Edwards says. Lower your eyes to the text. Notice he says in verses 4 through 8 that it is the Lord who saves. In verse 7, it is the Lord who keeps. In verse 8, it is the Lord who satisfies. Verse 10 The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Do you think the Lord is trying to play a trick on you? He's a good father who loves you. He wants you this morning to walk in repentance and faith because he wants to show you that he's good. I know you did not intend to be perhaps where you are at the age you are looking at your life. The Lord knows that. And he knows you can look back at your experiences, the glory days, which often as time passes seem to get even more glorious because somehow you just forget all the bad stuff and you think, well, now is so hard. Well, it was hard then too. But the Lord is good to you. And Trinity, if you were to live in the empowering truth that God is good and he really does love you, he is not ashamed of you because you're in Christ, you've planted yourself in him that it would radically change your life. You would hear T.J. Warren say, hey, there are 1,800 Afghan refugees about to come to Tulsa. And you would be thinking, how could we get them into our house for dinner? How could we love them as a church? How could we look at the people who live in our 196 people moved to Owasso last month? How could we get them to, into our community groups? How can we love them? Because they're all like Sarah and Josh Davenport and Stan Guthrie and Bruce. They're all longing for the good life. And so are you. And Psalm 34 says, you find the good life by taking refuge in him. Lions suffer want and hunger. Lions can go up to four days without water, but they need to eat every day and they search and search for food a lion can cover a hundred square miles looking for food adult female lions need about 11 pounds of meat each day while adult males eat up to 16 pounds or more and if you have teenage boys you know that's about the same ratio that you see in your house young lions want large herbivores. They want zebras and wildebeests and buffalo, but they'll take the small stuff. They'll take mice and birds and rabbits and lizards and even turtles. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but the Lord doesn't give you tortoises. He doesn't give you turtles. He gives you not 
the mice or the birds. He gives you himself. And he says, feed on me and my word. Would you come to me? I've given you an entire book of the Psalms so that you would read and you would know, taste and see that I am good to you. I know that where you are right now is hard. And the Father says to you, come. All who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Do you remember from last week where David was when he wrote this psalm? Remember, this is the strange story in 1 Samuel where David acts like he's mad before King Achish or King Abimelech. Same king, one's a Semitic, one's a Hebrew name. And he's acting like he's crazy because he knows that he needs this king, King Abimelech, not to turn him into Saul. And he is captive in this king's house and he begins to act mad. And even in the midst of his madness, he says, oh Lord, taste and see that you're good. Would you help my people know that you are good even when they're in dire straits and in tough situations? One commentator says, this is not an empty promise that the Lord will give us nothing less than the good things. This is not an empty promise of affluence, but it's an assurance of his loving and responsible care. Now, my generation and many of your generations had some pretty amazing experiences when we were college-age students of the Lord moving in our life. Maybe it was because of the age that we happened to be. Maybe it was because of the vulnerability we felt as college students. Or maybe it was just the Holy Spirit pouring out his affection on a generation of people. I don't know. But what I do know is that when millennials and Gen Zers hear messages like that, they go, huh, yeah, right. We didn't pack some field in Tennessee, 40,000 strong, and worship Jesus. We saw 9-11. We grew up hearing about a war in Afghanistan every day on the news for 20 years. We graduated from college And our parents said, why can't you get a job? And we said to them, because there are no jobs. And we live at home, and we don't want to. We just went through COVID, and we're fighting the same battle as you are. And we want to be part of the church, but truthfully, they say, the greatest hindrance to us understanding the gospel is not the progressive liberals like our parents think it is. It's the, and it's not the radical conservatives like our aunts and uncles think it is. It's the people in the church who think the church is for them. It's the people in the church who are self-righteous, who look down their nose at the younger generation. And we want to taste and see that the Lord is good. In the 1950s, if you were to look at wedding announcements to families, in the 1950s, what you would read, if you were to just take any major newspaper and and read it sometime, the wedding announcements would be about, you know, uh, the college of the groom where he graduated from. And it would be about, if she graduated from college, it would be about uh, the college that she graduated from. And if she had a job, it would talk about the job in past tense. She was a or saleswoman as though she won't be one now that she's married because her job will be to stay at home and take care of the kids. 
It'll talk about their sororities and their fraternities. It'll, it'll line up the civic organizations that they were a part of. He was a, she was a part of the junior league and she looks forward to being involved more. He's a part of the local commerce group and he is connected with these banks and they would highlight their family's name because back in the 1950s, it was the family name that got you security. And today, when you read wedding announcements, it looks very, very different. It doesn't often around here even talk about their families very much. It talks about their accomplishments. They went to Oklahoma State. They went to OU. They met here or there. It might mention their fraternity or their sorority. It'll talk about what he does, perhaps, or what he aspires to do. It might talk about what she also does because now mom also has to work. It'll talk about their plans. It'll talk about what their future is and living together. But it's built upon accomplishments of what they have done. And the difference between the 1950s was that you were made secure and you were provided by the relationships that you had in your civic organizations or in your family name. And today we live in a meritocracy where it doesn't matter what your family name is except in very, very small spheres of culture. And now it's all about performance. And you are as valuable as the last performance that you just completed. And so people today live in this pressure cooker of meritocracy and owning up to it and trying to stay afloat and if I can just get that bonus and I can just provide for my family and it's this hamster wheel that you begin to run and slowly but surely you've all bought into the American dream if I can just keep up with the Joneses if I can just do, and what the Lord wants you to say is amidst all of that would you stop would you taste and see that the Lord is good whether you're in a generation that brought security through family ties and a country club membership or you find your security in a plot of land with a don't tread on me flag in your yard or a GPA that's higher than a 4.0 or staying busy all the time or escaping reality with alcohol or buying up guns and ammo, there are four crucial questions that you all have to ask. What are your overarching values and beliefs? Where are you? Where are you? What's wrong with this world? How does it get fixed? And when we ask the question, where are you? We're not asking for your longitude and latitude. We're asking for where are you in the history of God's redemptive purposes? What are your overarching values and beliefs and behaviors that shape the world in which you live right now? Because a big part of how you view the good life depends on where you think you are in history. And David addresses his people as a parent instructs their children. Come, look at verse 11. Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What is man who desires life that loves many days that he may see good? What is the good life, in other words? And David immediately goes to the way you use your speech. Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. There's a story told of a teacher whose name was Pestalozzi. He lived in a Swiss village. He was highly esteemed by his peers and he was beloved by children whose lives are molded by the strength of this teacher's character. And after he died, there was a statue of him erected in this Swiss village and it was a, 
statue of Pestalozzi looking at this child and the child is peering into the teacher's eyes looking at him, listening for the instruction that he is giving him. And the people of the town who knew Pestalozzi said, stop, that is not how he would have wanted it. He was never asking the children to look at him. He was always giving them a much bigger idea than who he was. And so the friends of the Pestalozzi family made them redo the sculpture. And they shifted the gaze of the child to look past Pestalozzi into the sky. And they said, yes, that's it. Because the good teachers always point people to something far bigger and more profound than the teacher himself. And that's what David is trying to do. He's saying, friends, don't just look at the way the Lord has provided for Israel thus far. Don't just look at the way he's provided for you. Look at what the Lord himself has done. It was the Lord Christ himself who said, not my will, Father, but your will be done. It was the Lord Christ himself who the Lord saved from having any of his bones broken. Verse 20, he keeps all of his bones. Not any one of them is broken. It is turning the child's eyes towards something bigger than just the teacher. It is pointing him toward the greatest news of all the world that your Savior died for you and he loves you to give you the good life. And our job as a church is to stir that up in our children. There was one Owasso High School student who was given an assignment just a couple of weeks ago and asked to describe who they are to their teacher. And this is what he wrote. I admire a few people, but the greatest one among them is one who had unfathomable strength but chose to lower himself to the level of a group of wretches. But he didn't follow their example. Instead, he showed them what a perfect life would look like. Not without strife or pain, but one where one doesn't give in to the temptations of sin and despair. And sadly, it ended because some were jealous and afraid of him, and so they arranged for him an agonizing death, but it doesn't stop there. Three days later, he writes to his teacher, he walked out of his tomb alive and then he ascended into heaven, having fulfilled his purpose. I admire Jesus Christ, not because... He has strength, though strength he has, but because he gave it up so that he could save humanity from God's wrath. He took the blow aimed at humanity and survived. Friends, we are teaching another generation at this church what it means to turn your eyes to see something bigger than just the American dream. To see the crucified and resurrected Lord who had died for us, to taste and see that he is good. Like newborn babies, crave spiritual milk, Peter writes, so that by it you may taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm almost done. How does God protect us? The truth is, we cannot ultimately protect ourselves. Some of you in this room make, make money by helping secure other people's money. The, the federal department Deposit Insurance Corporation was formed between the, two, the first two world wars to ensure that the money you put in the bank today up to a certain point is safe and secure. But who protects the FDIC? In Ida, they said after Ida, New Orleans, who had just put millions of dollars into their levies, they said we need to reevaluate all of our levies. Constantly changing, constantly upkeep. All of these things are degrees of protection that we put up for ourselves. But the Lord's protection for us is of a totally different kind. 
Notice that this is covenantal language. He delivers the righteous. In Scripture, the righteous are God's chosen people that he protects. Isaiah says it this way, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give up Egypt as your ransom. Cush and Seba, I give an exchange for you because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring forth your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not withhold them. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who I created for my glory. God doesn't just give you a few shekels. God gives nations for you. He gives the world for you. He pays in earthen for you. He says, you're mine. There's nothing I won't do for you, even when it meant that God sent his only son. And some generations look now and go, how can God possibly send his son? That is evil and cruel. Oh, don't be so quick to judge. Jesus, who was that son, didn't think that, did he? Jesus, who was the one that some say, well, God sacrificed his son. How could that be just? Well, the one who was sacrificed said, oh, no, not my will, but your will be done. Who are you to judge? The Lord Jesus didn't think it was cruel. The Lord Jesus says, I love the people who are at worship. I love the people who are watching the service. I love Trinity. I gave my life for her. Jesus didn't think it was cruel. He said, I'm going to help them know what it means to live the good life. Verse 20, he keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. And then he concludes at verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. Not one of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Jesus treats you the same. The father treats you the same as he treats his son. Don't you see that your protection from eternal destruction is not an issue of degrees like you trying to secure your future. It is a totally different kind. It is by a covenantal love that has been seared in blood. And we ought to let that shape our life and calm our hearts when we're overwhelmed by band practice and dance and algebra and the book report, and getting dinner on the table, and paying the water bill, and leading the team, and managing that project, and closing on that house, or finding a house, or selling a house, or reconciling with a friend, or talking about sex with your spouse, or wanting to get pregnant, or raising a family, or buying groceries, or finding a job, or giving to a capital campaign, or joining a church, or studying the Bible, or making a new friend, or drinking good beverages, and enjoying the company of friends. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And David says, if you have to take refuge in him, what does that mean? In closing, it means two things. When you tell a three-year-old, come to me, take refuge in me, what does it mean for them? For Christians, taking refuge in the Lord means you trust in him. You cling to the work of Jesus on the cross as your primary identity. You are a son, a daughter of the living God. And you live your life as though your Father in heaven loves you and you run in obedience to him when he commands you. You do it because of the joy set before you. It's the deepest place of your soul's satisfaction. But for a three-year-old, 
What taking refuge in him means is that you cling to your mama as close as you can. You wrap your arms around her legs and you say, I'm not gonna let you go. You're at the grocery store with her and you don't ever let her out of your sight. And what happens for a lot of us, it's the way it happened back in college for many of us. This semester, the happening was at this church and we would go to this church for a semester. The vibe is there, it's good. And then next semester, the happening scene is over at this other church and we, we migrate over to this other church for a couple of years. And then when you get older and you get married, you go shop for a church. Listen, I get it. I get it. It's a natural part of trying to find a church. You have to shop. You have to find out which church is for you. You begin to go to churches and some of us have a bingo card and we play the bingo game and we say, okay, great music, check. All right. Good people, check. Nice coffee, check. And we have three check boxes on one part of our bingo card and two on the next. And we go to church, to church, to church. The truth is that some people go to four churches, which means they don't go to any church. Some people haven't gone to church in months. But when they come, you know what they want to see? They want to see real people who are honest and they are broken, who do not, look, do not look down their nose, who say, welcome to this church. If you are comfortable being with a bunch of sinners who are broken and need Jesus, then we want you to be a part of us. But if you get your life together, this church is going to make you feel really uncomfortable because we are people who take refuge, not in our accomplishments, but we take refuge in him. You want to take refuge in him? Then please hear what God is saying to you. This church does not exist to serve you, but you exist to serve the church. God wants you to use your gifts to take refuge in him, which means you take refuge in his body with him. And I know it's, I'm getting long, but I just want you to hear. Some of you have these amazing gifts and you are to use them for his glory's sake in serving, equipping, and making Trinity the best church it can possibly be. How? By you taking refuge in him. Practically, what does this look like? It means that when there's opportunities to serve, we want to jump at those opportunities. When we start 9 a.m. discipleship next week, there'll be two classes, Coffeeology with Pastor Scott and one on spiritual leadership with me. We want you to come to those. We want you to begin to learn what it means to use your gifts. In, in a month, we're gonna, we're gonna call Steve Garrison to be a deacon in our church. We're gonna elect him to do so. And we want to see more of us become elders and deacons in the weeks and months ahead. Ladies, we want you to be able to serve and use your gifts in so many beautiful ways in this church and to unfloor your wings and fly. You can do it. That is one of the ways you take refuge in him. And we've got to do that together. The Lord has asked, he has given, he has called you to live the good life. And it comes by tasting and seeing that God is good. And the chief way he wants you to taste and see it is in your local church in your body. If you're here and you're from CPC because of the fire this week, we love you. We are so glad you're here. Go make Christ Presbyterian Church the best church it could possibly be. Use your gifts. The church there does not exist for you. You exist to serve something bigger than you. And when you begin to do that, you begin to find yourself <sighs> tasting that God is good. Spiritual delight in God arises chiefly from God's beauty and perfection, not from the blessings that he gives to his people, Jonathan Edwards once said. So this passage begins 
with a call for us to magnify the Lord together. And it ends, this psalm ends, with a call for us to take refuge in him. Would you do it? And would you come to the table this morning saying to the Lord, Lord, I will use my gifts to lead the good life, to grow in a depth of relationship with people around this room. And we will do it together. We will taste and see that the Lord is good and that for those who seek the Lord, we will lack no good thing.